Turn with me again to the book of Romans, and we're still in chapter 1. If I could remind you of uh, the ground that we are seeking to cover, I mentioned when we began this morning that um, the approach that I am seeking to take in order to draw our minds to the importance of uh, global missions is to look at one of the, the chief examples that we have of that, and it is the Apostle Paul. And we're really asking the question, what is it that made Paul to be such a missionary? And I mentioned the fact that the way we will do it is to look at the book of Romans but simply the beginning and the end as two book ends. And in looking at that, we are seeing not so much his exposition of uh, the, the Christian message, which is glorious in this particular book, but more seeing something of the man himself, the author who writes this. I mentioned the fact that often when we do get to look at uh, the, the epistles of Paul, the beginning is personal and the end is often personal. And it's easy for us to overlook that and in the end we impoverish ourselves because every part of scripture is God's word written for our instruction. And in this particular case, we see something not just of a man's understanding of the Christian faith, but how it has marinated within his own soul and turned that person to be what they are in Christ. The Apostle Paul is writing about the gospel, but as he begins, as we noticed earlier, he talks about his own enthusiasm to come to Rome, the, the capital of the known world at that time in order for him to, to share this message. And I mentioned in our very first session that what made Paul to be the kind of missionary that he was, was because he was convinced that we, the Christian church, have the only good news in the world. And hence, we saw him enthused about getting to Rome, not just to have fellowship with the believers there, but he wanted to get to Rome to also reap a harvest through this same uh, message, a, a message that transcends any kind of artificial and superficial boundaries that we have, a message that is able to reap because it is the power of God. God works through this message to give life to the dead. Well, that's what we looked at this morning. In this next session, we'll be looking at still chapter 1, but this time verse 18 to the end. And basically, in answering the question, what made Paul such a missionary, I am saying it is because of his belief in the wrath of God. Paul genuinely believed that the God who has created 
the universe is a moral God by his very nature. He is a God who is jealous concerning his own glory. And consequently, where men and women are living in sin, where men and women are taking away from his glory, away from his worship, he comes in wrath. He comes in punishment. He genuinely believed that and consequently believed that there is only one answer to that wrath of God and it is this same good news, the message of the gospel. So it drove him into the work of missions. In uh, verse 18 downwards, he's opening up the subject of the wrath of God. He says there, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Before I open that up, let me at least explain what this passage is doing there. We noticed in the morning that the Apostle Paul was excited. He was, to use a modern term, over the moon with respect to this Christian gospel. And it is as though in his excitement, he, he, he noticed a, a, a less than excited response from his hearers as he speaks about the fact that this gospel is the power of God for everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith or from faith to faith or by faith from beginning to end, it is all by faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's really what he wants to talk about. That here is a message that is not saying to you, go and clean yourself up first and then come to God. And then he will, as it were, finish off the work by receiving you to himself. Here's a message that is saying it is, to borrow another term, all of grace. By grace, through faith alone. You cannot contribute anything to it. It is all done by God himself. So that's supposed to be glorious news. Why should that be the case? So, Paul at this point takes a detour from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3 and verse 20. So, just, just skip these verses for now. Let's go to chapter 3 and begin with verse 21. And what I want you to notice is that what he says in chapter 3, verse 21 is exactly what he was saying in chapter 1, and verse 17. He says there in chapter 3, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That's exactly what he was saying when he said from faith to faith 
or from faith for faith is basically saying it is all by faith without works, without the law. He says there, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. He repeats in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and as if it's not enough, he repeats, for all who believe. The point is making there again, it is by faith full stop. You don't bring anything by way of your own pretended obedience to the law. Jesus Christ has done it all. So he really opens that topic up after that. So what is he doing between chapter 1 verse 18 and chapter 3 verse 20? I want to suggest to you that it's talking about this wrath of God against ungodliness, against sin that is the, 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 the pitch black midnight sky with no stars whatsoever that is the background for the gospel. It's what makes you and me realize the world desperately needs this message. We cannot afford to be in our nice holy huddle enjoying ourselves when the world is, as it were, on fire. We need to, as it were, tie our shoelaces and make sure we get out there because we have the only message that can turn that darkness to light. That's what Paul is doing in between. Now, we can easily divide that section into two. The first is chapter 1, verse 18 to the end, which I will deal with in this message. And that is the, the wrath of God against the whole of humanity other than the Jews. Then in chapter 2, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, he is now dealing with the Jews. I'm skipping them primarily because I'm thinking global. I'm going beyond the immediate um, context in which Paul was living, or at least where he began his ministry from. He's saying, yes, I have begun from Jerusalem, from Judea, but I'm now taking this message to the ends of the world. Why is he doing it? Well, it's because of what he's speaking about in chapter 1, verse 18, to the end of this chapter. So that's why for tonight, I'm limiting myself to those verses. So why was this the most exciting news to Paul, this good news, this gospel. Well, he tells us it's because of this reality, the wrath of God. Verse 18, for the wrath of God 
is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. I want you to notice that he's not here thinking about hell. Yes, hell is coming. But he's thinking in terms of the present manifestation of God's wrath. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The second thing I want us to notice today is the order in which Paul thinks. He's saying it is against, first of all, ungodliness, and then secondly, unrighteousness of men. That order will soon be seen as we make our way through the rest of this chapter. But just bear that in mind. Ungodliness is referring to the failure to give God his glory, his worship. In other words, it's a failure in the vertical plane. And then unrighteousness is now talking in terms of the horizontal, the way in which we are relating to one another. Why is God angry with humanity? This is not just referring to one group of people. It is the whole of humanity. Why? Well, the answer is what Paul gives us in the remainder of this paragraph. At least verse 18 down to verse 20 and verse 21. This is the way he puts it who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. How? in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The point of the Apostle Paul is this, that in God creating the universe, in creating the earth, in creating all that he has put upon the earth, in creating you and me as we are, he has revealed enough about himself for us as human beings to make him the object of our adoration, the object of our devotion, the object of our everything. He's revealed enough. Anybody who, who takes any time to just look at creation must inevitably recognize that there is an infinitely intelligent creator behind all things. This cannot be a product of a bang. It can't. That there is a being behind all this who is an incredible designer. Just recently, the, there was a, uh, a friend in Zambia 
who, who almost died because of uh, the fact that he, he had a heart problem. And from that heart problem, he was given medication that was not really addressing the heart problem, but it, the medication was meant to address the extra fluids or water that was in the body. And uh, he took that medicine for too long. He didn't realize what he was doing to himself uh, until uh, he, he was in excruciating pain. And so as he, he, he went to, to the doctors and the a whole team looked at what was going on, a very young doctor finally said to him, what medicine are you on? So when he looked at it, he said, you need to stop this medicine immediately. And when he explained to him what was going on, I've never forgotten thinking, well, even he himself, this church member said, you know, the way God has made us, we are so intricately woven together that just one part gets imbalanced, so many other things begin to go wrong. Now, friends, that cannot be a result of a bang. It can't be. There is an extraordinarily intelligent being behind this. I, I worked, before I became a pastor, I worked as a mining engineer and worked underground, actually, in, in uh, the copper mines. And I'll tell you that every time I went underground and found a number of rocks that have been put together nicely, I knew that it wasn't just the bang, the explosion that produced this. Somebody passed here before me. A human being did this. Now, we are a lot more than a few stray blocks that have ended up being together. We are intricately interwoven. So this eternal power, this divine nature, this, this, this intelligence, this, and then when we, we think in terms of the vastness, the vastness of not just our solar system, but even further than that, the various galaxies, surely there must be the wow. The wow. God has revealed enough about himself for us to worship him. With all our beings. And Paul ends verse 20 by saying, so they are without excuse. But what is it that sin has done? Beginning with Genesis chapter 3, what has been the effect of that polluting, corrupting force that entered into the human race from Adam and Eve to the present day? wherever the sons and daughters of Adam have gone. What has been the effect? Well, Paul puts it this way in verse 21. For although they knew God, in other words, there was enough 
from creation for us to acknowledge him. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, in other words, a false form of education and knowledge, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Basically, Paul is explaining what's happened right across the human race, wherever it is that human beings are. And it is this, that instead of worshiping God as God, human beings have created a God of their own. That's what has happened. Now, in, in the, the first century in which the Apostle Paul was, especially the, the Greco-Roman world, it was these statues that were put up in, in, in ver on various altars resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Yes, in all their beauty made out of marble. But they are not God. Basically, human beings created idols of their own making. Now, that was true then. It has been true across history. It's true today. Different cultures, different people groups, different parts of the world have some sense of divine being, some way of explaining reality, but always missing out on the obvious, that which God has revealed of himself. So you go into my part of the world where we speak in terms of animism, and again, people will be worshipping anything that appears to be a little more extraordinary. That somehow in that is the divine being. And so if there is a tree or a mountain that seems to be huge compared to everyone else, somehow that becomes related to God. If there is some person who seems to be with abilities in terms of the, the underworld, again, somehow that becomes a shrine on which people are bowing. And consequently, there is one form of religion or the other. 
But even in what we may perhaps today refer to as the Western world, where the religion is in actual fact atheism, notice it's a religion, where again it's basically a form of saying, I love the way someone put it, there is no God and we hate him. It is a form of idolatry. It replaces God with man. We then become the center of everything. And again, it's a form of religion. It replaces the true God. And all that Paul is saying is this. Whatever the form might be, we have no excuse. We are taking worship from the true God and passing it on to others. In other parts of the world, they have a lot of small gods in shrines. You get there, they are real adherents. But it is idol. It is stealing from God that which belongs only to him. I love the way in which in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah challenges and is really challenging the Israelites because they had in the process begun to buy into the idols of the nations. And he was saying to them, think for a moment how these people who make physical idols will go into the bush, get a piece of wood, half of it they use for fire to warm themselves. The other half they give to someone with great abilities who curves an idol and they begin to worship saying, oh God, save us. And he says, why can't they think that half of this I'm using to cook food and warm myself? How then do I begin to bow to the other half to say, save us? But that's exactly what human beings have done. Today, we often worship fellow human beings. We call them stars. Movie stars. Music stars. Sports stars. Well, we know they are not stars. They are creatures of dust like ourselves a little more gifted in one area than the other, but as we often discover, they are all messed up morally. But we worship them. On red carpet events, they are our gods. And we 
we steal from the true God the attention, the worship, the praise, the thanksgiving that ought to go to him. I want to repeat. Any part of the world, that's what you find. A false and corrupting religion. Well, what Paul is saying is this. In the first century, wherever he went, that's what he saw. And it moved his soul. Not simply because he was feeling sorry for them being benighted souls, but because he knew that they were consequently under the wrath of Almighty God. Let's continue in this chapter and see how that wrath manifested itself. And it's primarily in that little phrase in verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. And it's a little phrase, God gave them up. God gave them up. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonoring passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, so there it is, that vertical relationship, the worship that is only to be given to the true God, they did not think it was worth their trouble. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. The righteous manifestation of the wrath of God is through this God giving them up. In other words, where God is truly worshipped, his grace, including common grace, multiplies in our society. He holds us back. He lifts us up from the degrading effect of that foul corrupt, sinful tendency that is in us that spirals us downwards. God in grace holds us up as human beings and as societies. But where human beings, now listen to this, where human beings say we don't want this God who has revealed himself in this way, we want to make a God convenient to us. He says, fine, if you don't want me, go. Let's see where it will take you. And that is his wrath. It happens in homes. 
a parent is seeking to nurture a child and the parent is saying, child, you are in my home. You need to obey me. You need to be under my authority. I am your parent. And the child insists, I'm now a teenager. I'm now an adult. I can do as I please and on and on. And finally the parent says, okay, do as you please. I want to assure you that's a punishment. It is. It's not long before that child, like the prodigal son, takes his share of the property and squanders it in riotous living. And finally finds himself sitting, not only feeding pigs, but admiring pigs. That's punishment. And that's what God has done to the human race. And what we notice in this passage, in the giving up, is giving us up to the dictates of our own fallen nature, to the dictates of our own fallen passions. And so we see, first of all, the sexual immorality in verse 24 and 25. Before we know it, it is homosexuality, verse 26 and verse 27. And then finally, it is everything that goes wrong. Everything. And I want us to see that in verse 29 downwards. Everything that finally makes society literally ungovernable. Verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. What a description of our It is the degrading power of sin. Only God is able to not only hold back that power, but God is able to cure that power. The moment we allow ourselves to be around any kind of idol and live by that, it becomes a thin facade on top. Inside, we are full of dead men's bones. It doesn't matter what religion it might be. As sincere as it might look on the outside, underneath is corruption and death. The Apostle Paul is saying, 
that that's the world out there as he was looking. It was a world that, yes, had governmental structures. Remember, it was the Roman world. But it was being eaten away from the inside by immorality, by corruption, by all manner of evil and covetousness and malice. It was a world that was in desperate need for the gospel. In fact, he talks about its, its being unredeemable, humanly speaking, in these words. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. In other words, every human being has a conscience. Deep down, they know that this is sinful. And if there is a God, he will punish us. He says this, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So what is humanity's greatest problem out there? In America, in South America, in Europe, in Africa, in Asia, what is the world's greatest need? Because all these things that we are reading here, that's what is pervasive around the world. Different degrees, but it's there. What is it? I want to suggest to you that it's not just to bring in righteousness because to try and do that through laws and regulations, through education and whatever it is, is like trying to pull ourselves by our bootlaces. It's impossible. Our greatest need is God himself. God coming in saving grace. And that's only through salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Which is what Paul later on comes to deal with in chapter 3 and verse 21. But let me try and put it by giving you a few negatives. First of all, the world's greatest need is not democracy. It's not. I know I'm in America, and it's a big thing to get democracy out there to the rest of the world. But I want to suggest to you that democracy, to even function right, needs the foundation 
of biblical Christianity. I also want to suggest to you, the greatest need for the world is not education. As important as education might be, often what we end up producing is simply sophisticated thieves and fraudsters. Because again, the heart is evil. It's not even better weapons, stiffer laws, worse punishment for offenders, and so on and so forth, the legal systems. Because before you know it, the very people that are heading the legal system and the police system, they themselves become corrupted. And the whole thing turns upside down. It's not even human rights and the so-called free press. Again, as important as those might be, you end up with them being absolutely abused as we know today that in the name of human rights, babies in the wombs are being murdered. May I also suggest to you that it's not simply getting rid of poverty and bringing in a wealthy state because money does not satisfy the human soul. There are individuals who own half the world who are in absolute misery. What the world needs is the true God of heaven. And that's why this man, the Apostle Paul, was willing to reach Rome with this gospel. The very capital of the world. And he is saying, I want to come there. I want to reap a harvest through this gospel because I know that that's what that world needs because it is under the wrath of Almighty God. Let me ask, are we convinced about that? Are we? We often get absorbed with the world's thinking and begin to think that perhaps if we could export our form of government and help people to overcome poverty and, 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 and try to um, help them medically and, and so on and so forth, we will have a better world. Friends, you know what that is? What we are seeking to do is to pour some um, hygienic fluid into a river, but we are not addressing the polluted source. It 
in the end is an activity in futility. What the world needs is the gospel. Is the gospel. And that's the reason why the whole world needs to hear our message. Even if they've got a form of religion, and even if they are very sincere in that form of religion, they need God as he is revealed in Jesus Christ. It is genuine pity that should drive us as it drove the Apostle Paul that we might proclaim Christ. Proclaim Christ. Proclaim Christ. That they might find God in Christ. And from there, everything else begins to spill out and change our world. That's the second reason why Paul became such a, an inspirational missionary. Aiming to get to Rome. And I pray that as we get more and more convinced about this, we are going to say to ourselves, it's worth our time, it's worth our money, it's worth sending our children to the ends of the earth to take the only good news that this world desperately needs, the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Eternal and gracious God, what a world we are in. A world that kicks at its only hope. The gospel of God. Help us, Lord, to remain faithful to this message because it's the only good news in the whole universe. A message that reconciles us to you. Father, by the work of your Holy Spirit, burn this truth into our being. That when we think about missions, global missions for that matter, it might be because we are utterly convinced that's what the world needs. Do this for us, for Jesus' sake. Amen.